I think the focus on on size and thinness and slimness is very destructive. Um, that's where you are. You're in death camp, as it were. And if you if you stay there, if you don't change, you'll die. It drives wives wicked. It makes such a golden brown pie. It must be lots of fun to be a mother. I've got something to apologize for. I wore my good suit because it was plain and neat. Afraid of not knowing what is proper. This yellow fluffo is such a short shortening. Hi, I'm Susan Osman, and this is Been There, Done That, a show about women who are shaping our world. Experienced, smart, versatile women who are redefining what it means to be a woman in the workplace today. You know I can't work without a good breakfast. All right, Claire, stop typing, please. All right, Claire, stop typing, please. This week, I talked to one of these women, Hetty Baines-Russell. Actress, writer, artist and producer, a multi-talented performer who has reinvented herself over the years. Hetty, thanks very much for being on the show. Pleasure. Now, from a very young age, you were in the public eye. I think it was three years old you first went onto a stage. I did, as a forget-me-not in um, a ballet festival in Southampton. And I have to say, I forgot (laughs) what I was supposed to do. And um, I think the teacher sh- screamed out from the audience. So did, that didn't put you off? No, I was sort of programmed to be the next Margaret Fontaine, really. Um, a combination of my mother and then my determination. <laughs> um, my mother's kind of lost dreams. And, you know, women of, of that generation who didn't have the same opportunities of girls of my generation... Um, so she, you know, she was very encouraging of that career, and it was a career from age three. <laughs> and um, I, you know, would have ballet lessons sort of four times a week. I performed in festivals. I did all the exams. It was, you know, intense. It was like a career. And then I went to the Royal Ballet School <clears throat> when I was ten. Gosh, you were very young, and yeah. you became a, a very accomplished ballerina at the age of twelve. When you, I think, you danced with Nureyev. Well, yes, I mean that was just part of what happened for pupils at the school. Um, I was a rat in the Nutcracker, Chime Seven, um, and Nureyev choreographed that. And I was a fairy page, rainbow fairy page in the Sleeping Beauty at that era, which was mid sixties. Wonderful ballet dancers were dancing then so it was Fontaine and Nureyev in that incredible phase where she kind of came back to life because of him you know mm-hmm. and Lynn Seymour Antoinette Sibley Antony Dahl Svetlana Beriosova you know fantastic um, dancers and part of being at the school you got to experience and absorb all of that so you go to rehearsals every couple of weeks at Covent Garden and dance in the ballets and everything and um, there were other sides to the school which were a bit extreme um, and I'm not sure I approve of now I, I kind of suddenly woke up to acting when I was there when I was kind of 12 13 because my creativity has moved around in my life and and come out in different ways it's like it it moves around inside you and then tells you it wants to come out in a different place or different way of expressing yourself and the first my first experience of that was from shifting from ballet to acting well let's talk a little bit about your background your mother had a same-sex love affair with your godmother Mm -hmm. at a time when same-sex relationships were not that common Mm. did you regard your mother as brave 
How, how did I didn't, you deal with it when you were growing up or didn't you know about it? I didn't know about it. I mean, it seems odd that I wouldn't because obviously it was obvious. But um, when you're in something, and especially at, at the, in that time, that era, so it's very, very different to now. So this was mid-60s. And um, I didn't, I didn't think I even really understood what homosexuality was, really. Well, certainly not with women. I knew that there were certain certain things that made me feel uncomfortable, and I didn't understand, and it was confusing, because my godmother was like a stepfather to me, and they 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 kind of raised me so um, from a baby. So I I had a relationship with my father. He was there, but he'd go away in the week. He was an airplane designer inventor, and he was away in the week, and then my godmother was there. <laughs> And then Daddy would come back at the weekend, and you know, and they'd fight over who was going to carve the joint. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously, I mean, it's some of it's funny, you know. Do you think your father knew? Oh God, yes. I mean, they did, they did, but we didn't. So when you say we, did the children, my siblings and I, yeah. How many brothers and sisters? They were much older than me. Uh, Four, four, but they were much older, and so they were kind of. The, the family unit of my parents rather than I was more the family unit with Mummy and Mary. And how long did their relationship go on for? Do, do you kind know that? Kind of forever, really, until they died, you know. So it was a really very serious, important relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and they, they didn't live together in the end, um, although, you know, they'd visit and everything. Um, but it was... Very obvious to other people because Mary was like was very masculine. She was more masculine than my father, really. She physically, if if you were at a distance from her, you wouldn't know whether she was a woman or a man, you know. And how do you think your father coped with it? I mean, he he just went away during the week, and then, as you say, came back at weekends and, and argued over fight, the yes, I mean, was, over the roast. I mean, you know, it's it's funny, but it was obviously no, of course. It was not. Yeah, no, of course not. It was. It was not funny, but you know it was. It was as well. I mean, you know, Mary. Once when we we left Daddy, it split out when I was nine, and I was raised in Dorset, and they bought a house near Richmond Park. And the reason when you say they, Mummy and Mary, Mummy and Mary, Mother and Mary. Okay. And the reason we were given that they were buying this house was because of me going to the Royal Ballet School. I hadn't actually auditioned for the role. No, really. <laughs> so what would have happened if I hadn't got in? You know, bit of a pressure there. Bit of a pressure, <laughs> yes. But that was the sort of, you know, there were fabrications to conceal their life. Um, for example, one of the really poignant moments that I remember very clearly was I'd been to a friend for the day, came back, and there'd been a drama. And I didn't quite understand what the drama had been, but... M- my godmother, Mary, had attacked a suitor of my mother's because my mother was a big flirt, you know, about like me, or just, you know, maybe even worse than me, um, <laughs> with men, you know. She was, you wouldn't have thought that she was gay at all. Um, and there were all sorts of men that found her attractive. And this one particular chap who was an artist from the area of Dorset that we lived in had pursued her up in London and... Um, Apparently, Mary had seen him off with a carving knife. No. (laughs) (laughs) That was just another day, you know. But I remember the scene, the scene I remember so vividly. I was at the top of the stairs, so I was about nine, was Mary on her knees, this very robust sculptor, um, 
begging mummy not to ruin everything. Gosh. And I didn't understand, no. obviously. But, you know, you absorb you absorb a lot of things. You know, the things one witnessed and I've sort of repressed and then through years of therapy, which I admit I've had, um, you know, I've realised I did know, but I repressed because I couldn't deal with it. Are they scenes that you have drawn on to write about later on in life? Because um, yeah. neither your mother nor Mary are alive now, are they? No, so no. Do you feel you could write about them? Now? Yeah, I did write. I did write it. I've written it in different forms and then stopped. And in kind of memoir, um, then novel, and, and then stopped. Because I do want to write this story. Hmm. And then recently... Um, and I had to put the project I'm working on now sort of down for a minute well, for various reasons. And I then thought I need to start something new. And it was, I created the space to, to write. And um, what came out was this this story in script form, so TV. It is an amazing story. I mean, it is I, an interesting I, story yeah, of its era. Of, of its era, because yeah. when one thinks of same-sex relationships, I, mean, I think the, probably the first same-sex relationship I was ever really aware of was uh, Virginia Woolf and Vita Sackville-West. Mm. Mm. And they were kind of like the Bloom's reset that mm. was very liberal. But even they were very covert in their relationship. Well, it was the friendship. And, yeah. and they were both married, of course, to men. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, Mary's um, background was very much Bloomsbury. Her father was an RA painter and her mother sort of created theatre, mime, ballet, theatre, psychological... I don't know quite what, but, you know, she had therapy with Jung and he came to the house and, you know, it was all that. So you'd think, in a way, that Mary wouldn't have been so self-conscious about it, mm. but um, she was and they were... So at what age were you, Hetty, when you became anorexic? And was that as a direct or indirect result of ballet? I, I think it's a, it was a combination of, of different factors. I think that was obviously one of them because you, there's such a focus on the body and self-image and um, you're scrutinised at the school at that time. I don't know what it's like now, but... Um, you know, your body is is treated like um, you will. You're a kind of servant of your body. You'd have weighing and measuring every term. You'd be treated in third, discussed in third person. You'd be weighed and measured. You know, you you were a you were a specimen in a way. And there was such a focus on the shape, your size, how how big you were going to grow. Um, you, there were mirrors everywhere. It, it, you know. Th- that has a huge effect, obviously, at a prepubescent girl. And the other factors were probably my in my background, my environment I was raised in, which was complicated. I want to talk at the moment about mental health, because I know this is something that you have spoken out I about. I have, yes. And, and the, the importance of the pressure of body image on young, young women in particular. I'm vehement about you know, anti-diets and anti-pressure um, on the body image and um, the identity 
linked to it. So you feel your your identity at that age is is so linked to how you look as a young girl, any young girl, not just one in the Royal Ballet School, you know. And um, I think the focus on on size and thinness and slimness and is very destructive. So how were you able to get back to a, a so-called normal weight? How, how long did you actually struggle with anorexia? I don't think it ever goes away, really. If, if, if you've gone through that, it's, it's always kind of with you on some level. Um, it took me until I was 20 to really turn the corner with it. Um, so from 14, 15, it was about 14 and a half, 15 that I that I started um, being affected by it. I would say I was very ill for, you know, two or three years seriously on medication and, you know, just about functioning on quite a subliminal level. And then when I became an actress, that was my lifeline, and I, yes. I was very busy, I was very lucky, so I never stopped working. Um, so I would say I was a functioning anorexic from the age of sort of 16, 17 when I started to be, to be a professional actress. And um, I kind of kept it under control. But and probably nobody would necessarily known. I just looked like a very slim girl, you know. People wouldn't yeah. have known. A lot has a lot has been talked about in the, in the public eye about uh, anorexia, and and there's some um, some latest research to suggest that it could be physical as opposed to psychological. And again, I think you have some very concrete thoughts about that. Um, I, I I would say it's very much for psychological um, psychological emotional response and and where your where your issues or, or whatever those issues might be manifest i think certain elements are common with with anorexics it's often a lot of control put upon the the child or the teenager or you know adults some adults suddenly anorexic on the person but what got you out of it? You know, what was the? I mean, you said you said acting was your your sort of refuge. But what what did you just wake up well, one day? I had, and... I, had a, I had an experience actually. Okay, do and tell. in fact, I've used that in my latest series that I've written. Although I've made it, it's a comedy moment, whereas actually it wasn't. It was a very serious moment. But subliminally, there are mental health and addiction issues in it, and. Um, so I'll tell you what happened. I had an experience which was over three days or three mornings, quarter to four each morning. And I remember the dates distinctly. I consider it my second birthday, really, or rebirth day, if you like. Um, I woke up at quarter to four and saw or experienced. It was I didn't really see a, 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 an angel or a being, really, but the being that the presence was there and projected onto my wall, my bedroom wall, was um, an image of a line down the middle and on the left was death and on the, le on the right was life. And the image on the left was me as I was then, which was a sort of waif-like me. And on the right was me um, more as I am or as I, as I have been since. And um, the beingness said... Um, that's where you are. You're in death camp, as it were. And if you if you stay there, if you don't change, you'll die.
Well, that must have been quite hard because, uh, I, I mean, I've never had anorexia, but I do know people uh, in my life who have had it. And I know it's quite a hard road back, isn't Huge, it? To... Hugely hard. And, um, you know, it doesn't stop there just because you kind of face that one. It does come out in other ways because the things are inside you that you're dealing with. Like any addictive mental health issue, you've gone into some form, form of escape or, or control with the escape. So in the case of, of anorexia, your world revolves around um, your size, what you're eating, what you're not eating. I mean, it's, you know, it's like a prison, really. Who do you blame for this pressure on women to, to look a particular way? Or is it not as simple as blaming somebody or something? Um, I, I think it's more about understanding. I don't think our society helps, really. Right. Um, obviously, I was in a ballet environment, which also <laughs> um, is, exacerbates it, obviously, because of the emphasis on size and shape. And I think it's to do with identity, though, and I think that's the dangerous area when you're vulnerable as a teenager and you don't quite know who you are, and um, you also go into a form of control. So if you're controlling what you're eating, what your body is doing, you're, you're in control of your world, when of course you aren't. Mm -hmm. But on some level, that there's probably a sense of massive out-of-control thing going on of some kind. And so you assume this major control, which then you become a prisoner of, um, and you can't control it so it's controlling you like any addiction so if it was for example if it was alcohol you know then the alcohol controls you in this case the diets or the whatever it is the weighing machines or the checking your body or etc is controlling you and then interestingly you went from ballet to the theatre and again in the theatre a lot of actresses today certainly and and obviously in the past uh, very much had to rely on their looks to get the parts yeah, I think it again. It was the world I knew, so it, that was something I I didn't know anything else other than that. And I think for me, um, it was a combination. I think I don't know what it would have been like if I hadn't been a pretty girl. Um, you know, I was, so I didn't know anything else. But I didn't think I was pretty, obviously, because I. <laughs> I felt I was kind of dysmorphic in a way. How so interesting. So I, I kind of looked at myself on the telly or whatever, photographs, and didn't really identify with that person. That It was like, well, the makeup, that's the makeup, mm. it's not me. How interesting. Because inside I felt the opposite, really. How, how old is your son? He's 26. Has your history impacted on the way you've brought him up? I think it always does, doesn't it? Mm. I think um, I, w I was kind of, um, I didn't pressure him <laughs> because I had such a pressured childhood to be, you know, Margot Fontaine. Um, and um, very controlled uh, I'm sure he would say I also could be controlling, but then, you know, probably most mothers are, especially single mothers. Um, 
he uh, i i didn't force him into anything i was very much allowing him to be himself and and let me know what he wanted and you know so i i didn't impose the identity or the pressure or that you've got to do this on him at all i was probably the reverse you know and what about his father because were you married to ken russell I was. at that time yeah now did ken russell uh, as a film director sort of want to project onto his son or did he allow you to do the majority of the nurturing? Well, Ken was, you know, 30 years older than me when Mm -hmm. we met and he'd had seven children. (laughs) And um, so he was coming at it from a very different stance to me as a first-time mother in my mid-30s, not sure that I could actually have children. There had been sort of concerns I might not be able to. And then I have this wonderful little boy and who was premature even and um yes ken let me was very much let, left things to me in a way but he he was also close to rex and um we obviously we we divorced when rex was about five so but he still kept the relationship you know i kept the their relationship going he would stay weekends and Every fortnight, and you know, had a relationship. So you're now you're writing, as we've just said, about some of your past, and you're also producing. Do, do you like producing other people? Love producing. Do love you? It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love it. <laughs> and and do you see yourself in in the future still hitting the box office hits of the day when you're perhaps you're in your nineties, or do you think you'll ever retire? Oh, I don't think. I think I don't think I would want to retire really. I don't think so. I don't want to carry on. I think creativity, if you're a sort of creative artist person, um, it's part of you. As I said, it sort of moves around inside you and then it says, oh, I want to come out here now and I want to come out here now. I think it's just part of you. And um, so I I wouldn't expect not to be doing that in whatever form it wants to come out in me, as it were. (laughs) Do you have a creative bucket list, so to speak? Uh, well, I, I'm really into, you know, creating at the moment, creating this comedy drama series. Um, and so that's my f- sort of creative focus at the moment. And then and then the next one, which I've talked about, is, is sort of waiting in the wings. And I've got about three others in the computer drawer, as it were, waiting. What, what would you say to, to younger women? What advice would you give them? Um, in what specific area? How about life in general? And, and, and I think it's very interesting that you talk about this creative energy that wants to manifest in different ways what 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 encouragement would you give to younger women listening to this who think actually i i feel really creative but i'm i'm working an x or i'm doing y i think i'll totally acknowledge it um and i am i allowed to reference a book of course um i i because i do a bit of coaching on the side for people to help them with their lives you know and um i often um advise them to read a book called The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron, which is about sort of creative recovery. I would say honour your authentic self. Honour your truth at all times, if you can. Don't be afraid to be yourself. And dig inside for your creativity, because I think everybody has it. I think everybody's creative. And I was raised, I mean, for all its bonkersness, my background, I was raised to um, value my my creativity, that was certainly, and that I would have a career as a creative artist in some form. So that was 
really positive. You know, yes, it may have been had all these other elements to it, but you know, a lot of people aren't. They're raised in a very straight environment with kind of day job. Um, I think whenever I've tried to have a day job, it lasts three days and I get a headache and never get paid. So it's like, don't do it. You know. Um, so for for people in more of an or, or not ordinary, but you know, sort of day job world of of, of uh, upbringing and environment, um, tune into to what. This expression, how it wants to come out, what it, what area it might want to express itself, and do it. Do you like yourself more now that you're older? I think, gosh, it's been such a journey. When you say like yourself, just as a, as a human being. I well, think, yes, and also yeah. the way you look. Do you like the way you look now? Gosh, I think I'm not so hung up on it like God. But I do, you know, I liked clothes and I like, you know, girly makeup and, and that I've accepted that's just me because I, you know, that's what I like. Um, but yeah, I I, uh, I feel at home in my own skin now, I think at last, yeah. It's been an absolute pleasure. Hetty Baines Russell, you've certainly been there, done that. Thank you for talking with me. Thank you for listening to Been There, Done That with me, Susan Osman. Visit us on btdtshow.com for more interviews with dynamic women. And I'd love to hear from you as well, so please leave us a review and subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. These are words of respect. How can you tell when you really want? And look how flaky it is. The girls weigh each portion of food they select. The Been There, Done That show is brought to you by Dan Hall at Pup Media Consultancy. We can still have a lot of fun, can't we? Your manners are showing. Ladies, would you each check the inside of your washer? To- Overweight makes an individual undesirable. Kind of a mess, wouldn't you say, Mr. Strayer? Beautiful. And you think that's all that matters?